The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the big finish story, The Red House. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hey, Father Corey. How's it going? Folks, remember to like The Secrets of Doctor Who on Facebook, where we're at facebook.com slash secrets of Doctor Who. Retweet us on Twitter, where we're at SQPN, and be sure to leave us comments wherever you find us. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, I want to remind you that, we, or let you know, that we've got some feedback at the end of this episode. Stick around for that. And I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy called PlayStation Portable. It's an opportunity for daily prayer from the Catholic tradition. Liturgy, liturgy of the hours. That's right. So you can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash PSP. So uh, let's talk about Red House. Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what happens? This week, the Sixth Doctor and Charlie Pollard arrive on an Earth colony in the early 3000s. They are promptly chased by werewolves on wheels, and Charlie is captured and taken before Dr. Payton, who is known as Dr. Payne, in a big red house called the Red House. Dr. Payne believes that Charlie is a skin hide, that is, a werewolf who has turned into a human. So she's looking to use a psychic lobotomizing machine to remove the human elements from her so that she'll be a normal werewolf. But Charlie is a pure human, so this would kill her. The Valyard, who has been disguised as a porter, freezes Dr. Payne in time and rescues Charlie. He says that he's a Time Lord from the future, and he reveals the history of the colony. He says that humans, when they arrived, killed off the original wolf-like species on the planet, but first some were bitten and became werewolves. The werewolves were left on an island, and they gradually evolved into a new peaceful werewolf species. But they become aggressive if they turn into humans. Many humans who live on the mainland want to kill them, but Dr. Payne, who is herself a human, is actually trying to save them by removing their aggressive human elements. The Villiard also says that Charlie must help prevent the Doctor from leading a rebellion, as it will cause the mainlanders to nuke the island and commit genocide. Meanwhile, the Doctor has fallen in with a group of hippie werewolves who like turning into humanoids, and he's leading them in a rebellion in order to save Charlie, which will lead to the genocide the Villiard warned about. As the werewolves are taking over the Red House, the Doctor and Charlie find each other, and Dr. Payne, who's now unfrozen in time, reveals that the mainlanders are indeed about to kill everyone on the island with a nuclear missile. The Doctor takes a group to the TARDIS in hopes of evacuating at least a breeding pair of werewolves to save the species. However, the nuclear missile goes off, but it's hundreds of miles away from the island when it explodes. The Doctor deduces from the key in the TARDIS lock that the Time Lord from the future borrowed the TARDIS. He used the time freeze technology to stop the missile in midair until the planet had turned so that it wouldn't hit the island. 
and he materialized the TARDIS around Dr. Payne's psychic lobotomizing machine, which is missing, and stole it. There's still danger, though, to the werewolves from the mainlanders, so the Doctor recommends that they leave the island and find a new island to live on. The end. So uh, let's start by just talking about what we thought of the story overall. Uh, Jimmy, what would you think of The Red House? I enjoyed it. Um, you know, it's not the, it's not, it didn't, it's not a knock me out of the park Big Finish production, of which there are some, like Live 34, I think is amazing. Um, or the Christmas episode we did with the Eighth Doctor and Charlie. You know, some, some are just A plus level stories that are better than anything that's ever been done on TV. This was a good, enjoyable adventure. And, uh, I liked having Charlie in it. Um, the concept of where of a a sort of lupiform human or lupamesoform human, you know, someone that normally looks like a werewolf who then turns human, is an interesting concept. And I like, in particular, the reference to werewolves on wheels. That's a so at the beginning, the the werewolf police are chasing Charlie and the Doctor, and they're riding something apparently like motorcycles. And um, Werewolves on Wheels is a 1971 movie about a bunch of bikers who get turned into werewolves. And I've seen it. <laughs> That's great. How about you, Father Corey? What would you think of this one? Oh, I agree. This was, this was a very enjoyable uh, thing. I, like the, I do like the, the, the flipping on its head, the idea of you know, werewolves, you know, instead, of that they're, instead of being human to wolves, they're wolves to humans. Um, and that it was a gradual evolution. That you know they started out as a traditional werewolf, but eventually they they became more wolf than human, and that mm-hmm. was a I thought kind of an interesting idea as well. Yeah, I mean, I I I think I agree with both of you. The, the, this was um this was a pretty good story. I mean, it was I don't think it was as good as End of the Line, the mm-hmm. last one we talked about. Um, I kind of there was something about that one I kind of liked a little more, but this one I I, I enjoyed. I really like Charlie. Uh, she's always fun in these stories now that we've seen seen her or heard her a few times and with the Eighth Doctor. And um, I'm curious what the Valyard's on to here with these stories. We've now seen him in two of these. He seems to be collecting technology, so that's kind of an interesting open ended question. Um. I like the turnabout, the werewolves that, you know, the wolves that become human, uh, savage humans, as opposed to the humans that become savage wolves. And the little hint at the Little Red Riding Hood uh, stuff that's going on here as well. Um, you know, Grandma's house and the, that sort of thing, uh, mm. which is a, which is kind of fun. So, yeah, there's, there's some nice fun elements in this. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why I didn't think it was awesome. I'm not sure what it was lacking. Maybe we can talk about that as we go through. Uh, but. Yeah, it was it was fun. It was it was functional. Well, I think it's I think it's just a fairly straightforward story, which makes it a good story, provided it doesn't have any major flaws. And I didn't notice any major flaws, although I was a little annoyed by. I mean, I, I could, there are some minor things I could mention, like they're a little inconsistent on just how wolfy are the werewolves and just how human do they become when they become human. So there's some little inconsistencies there. Also, they refer to the werewolves as wolverines, which I found a little distracting because wolverines are a real animal. Yeah. And they don't and they're not wolves. <laughs> um 
they apparently, I was going to say, maybe they don't have them in Britain. So I checked and they don't have them in Britain. Um, werewolves live in Arctic environs in the, uh, or you know, much farther north in the uh, Americas and in the old world. But uh, I don't know, I guess maybe Wolverines, they don't have major sports ball teams named after them in Britain. And so <laughs> they're less part of British culture and it's not as distracting for British people maybe to hear werewolves called Wolverines. Maybe they were they were getting confused with Wolverine the X-Man as a man-wolf thing. I, maybe, who knows? But yeah, <laughs> that does seem, uh, that was a little uh, distracting. So. Um, as I mentioned, I think I mentioned, uh, this is the second story in the Six Doctors' last adventure, the mm-hmm. Big Finish series, and uh, which is, features each one, the Valyard and the Six mm-hmm. Doctor, but different companions each time. Yeah, and this isn't too unusual for Big Finish. Normally, they don't switch up the companions like this um, in, a, in like a four-part set, but they do typically have a big bad who's the the Valyard this time that emerges slowly just doing little things over the first three, two or at least two and a half stories. And then they emerge from the shadows and become the big bad at the end. Right. Right. But they, the, the reason for the changing companions is they're telling us this story is set across multiple periods in the six doctors time. Right. Exactly. And we, we mentioned last time that, Charlie, when she's with the Eighth Doctor, she's not aware that she's this um, unstable factor in the time web, Mm -hmm. whereas with the Sixth Doctor, she is aware, but he's not. And so we start off with her kind of um, stumbling a bit, maybe Mm -hmm. almost revealing too much. Uh, They're talking about, you know, adventures that they, things that they've encountered recently, like, oh, no fictional highwaymen, no Marxist Daleks. And then she mentions vertosaurs instead of dinosaurs which yeah. she's not supposed to know about vertosaurs right the because vertosaurs were something she met immediately after meeting the eighth doctor in fact they had a vertosaur on the tardis with them for a while as a kind of pet and she mentions vertosaurs in front of the sixth doctor and he doesn't know that she's a future companion he just thinks she's a woman he picked up in the year 500,002. And so he's, he, when she mentions Vortosaurs, he's like, Vortosaurs? And she's, she immediately starts backpedaling with like, oh, you know, whatever those might be. Right, right. Uh, and Vortosaurs are important because they, they're actually part of her being a, an unstable element on the time web there and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So um, does she get left in 500,002 by the Eighth Doctor? I haven't heard those stories, but I assume she ends up there somehow. Okay. Okay. I mean, he may not leave her there, but she she ends up there somehow. Okay. Could be and, a time tornado. Who knows? Mm. <laughs> right. Right. So, uh, so this is the thirty first century, which the Doctor spends a lot of time in, by the way, especially in Classic Who. I noticed, um, and this is the thirty first century on some colony planet of Earth that was colonized uh, a while ago. And we don't know much beyond that. The doctor doesn't even know really where they are. Um, and we get this um, curfew bell at dawn. They tell us it's dawn. The bell starts ringing and people start going in, which mm-hmm. is again, sort of the opposite of what you expect of, you know, people coming out at dawn and going, having a curfew bell at night, perhaps. There's a great line and it's a little paradoxical, but there's a great line. um 
at the at the beginning of that because it's still it's still dark, but it's a the sun is about to come up. And um, the doctor, Charlie makes a remark about it being night or something. And the doctor says, it's not night because the sun's about to come up. And Charlie says, have you been at the carrot juice again? Which, which, is, <laughs> which is really funny, but it's also a bit of a paradox because it's Mel, Melanie Bush, who is the companion that forces the doctor to drink carrot juice. And Melanie Bush is the sixth doctor's last companion. So this in this adventure with Charlie must occur before Melanie Bush and therefore why would the doctor be at the carrot juice? Right, right. And I, I actually that brings up a question I had. So of these these four parts of the last adventure, the the fourth part is really the last adventure, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's the one that's going to have Mel in it and that sort of thing. Okay. And um, so back to this story. So the the cops, the werewolves on bikes, they, they're all female, apparently, fe- mm-hmm. all female cops. Um, they call themselves the Red Hoods, which is, mm-hmm. you know, again, that, that Little Red Riding Hood uh, <laughs> reference, which I think is kind of funny. Um, and they chase the Doctor and Charlie into a forest, which is kind of funny because, again, in its fairy tales, you stay out of the forest. That's where you encounter mm-hmm. the the wolf. Mm-hmm. This is you're getting away from the wolves by running to this forest, which I think they even point out is like dark and foreboding or something like that. Mm-hmm. And apparently, sunlight is is painful or distressing for the wolves, so they're wearing something called sunsuits, which I imagined as kind of like red hazmat suits to mm-hmm. protect them from the sun. Yes, with a snout. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, and then Charlie, well, they they get the doctor gets caught up in branches, and there's a whole funny bit about the doctor's talking about the doctor's like uh, jacket and being uh, crazy, and Charlie taking the jacket from him, but she falls into a pit trap, uh, and the doctor has to run off without her, uh, because you know they, otherwise they'll both get captured, and. Um, the, she gets take like you said taken by the cops, but the doctor encounters the hippie werewolves, and it's kind of interesting because with the werewolves, they don't try to make them. I mean, apart from the cops kind of yipping and baying as they chase the the doctor and Charlie, when they're con- when they're having a conversation, they just kind of sound normal, like you and mm-hmm. me. You know, it's kind of interesting, and you're kind of supplying. Oh, right, like I have to ke- had to keep reminding mm-hmm. myself. These look like wolves. They do alter their voices a little bit to make it, you know, sound like, sound more gruff and things like that. Right. They're, yes, they do that sometimes. But I think they're trying to contrast that with when they be, when the skin hides become human. They don't just become like you and me, 20th century, you know, 21st century Brits or Americans. They become savages right Mm -hmm. yeah the doctor at one point describes them in their human form or he sees one of them transform and he describes it as a kind of humanoid a primitive humanoid but it seems and this is one of the why i said they're a little inconsistent on just how wolfy do they get and just how human do they get because they apparently can become full fully human uh, to appearance in fact they they think that, that when they first meet him that the doctor is one of them because he looks human and and so they recognize him as what they can become and they think he's just another werewolf fr- from the island i guess 
but he's daring to walk around in human form in full daylight. It's like hardcore, man. Wow, <laughs> this is so bold. And the doctor has no idea what they're talking about because he hasn't realized yet what their nature is. And it becomes a big thing about is he one of us or not. But there's also some funny material in here where the leader, a guy named Ugo of the hippie werewolves, is once he gets the doctor gets brought to Ugo, they're they're planning to have a human transforming party in the daytime. And they do this in secret. And so Ugo is like, yeah, man, we're going to let it all hang out. And the doctor is, oh, it's that type of party. I think I better leave. (laughs) Hey, man, you're so funny. We're just going to do what comes natural. (laughs) And so, (laughs) and they they keep going back to that well for, you know, uh, things that are meant innocently by the werewolves, but the doctor keeps taking them as sexual innuendo and becoming uncomfortable. Right, well, right. Well, and these are portrayed too as teenagers. You know that, yeah, they're hippies, but they're teenagers who are rebelling against the yes. man, rebelling against the rules. You know, kind of think of Woodstock, but with werewolves. <laughs> Werewolf stock. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, it, that does make it a little bit fun. That that's it's seen especially where the the doctor's very uncomfortable in this situation. Um, and you know, the other thing that's interesting is Doctor Payne or Painton. We are, they really drive home this idea, right, to the name that she's a bad guy right from the start. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, they, they, again, everything in this story is flipped on its head. And in this case, they flip it on its head. And no, no, she's trying to help people. She's come to, to help. Now, is taking the humanity out of them, the, the human DNA and the human psyche or whatever, out of them and making them just plain wolf people? Is that helping them really in the long run? I'm not sure, but I think she thinks so. Well, she she does, and she has justification for that. Whether anything is justifiable in the long run is always hard to say because we don't know the future. But the, she knows that most of the people who live on the mainland, most of the humans, are very suspicious of the werewolves and want to wipe them out. And they will do that if they perceive the werewolves as being aggressive. And the werewolves become aggressive when they take on their human form. You know, it's like in it's like if you if you watch The Wolfman from what was it, nineteen forty one? Um, Claude Rains, uh, is, or not Claude Rains, but um, uh, Lon Chaney Jr. Mm-hmm. as Larry Talbot. I mean, Claude Rains is in the movie, but he's Lon Chaney Jr.'s dad. Lon Chaney Jr. is nice, sweet guy, mild-mannered in his human form, and he becomes savage as a wolf. Well, this is the reverse of that. The werewolves are peaceful when they're in their wolf form, and they become savage when they're humans. So, um, so they are a threat. It's, this is, she's effectively trying to cure Lon Chaney. Mm, you know, right. she's trying to extract the, the dangerous L. I mean, in fact, if you watch, I recently watched all the all the Lon Chaney werewolf films, which merge into the Frankenstein series. Um, but uh, he his whole thing is, I want to be cured. He every movie he wants to be cured, and she's essentially trying to do that. She's trying to remove the dangerous homicidal element from him. Right. There's an interesting parallel in this too, like a metaphor that they're going. I think they they might be going for because what we're told eventually is that. The colonists were bitten by the native wolf-like creatures, you know, from on the planet, who caused them to start to transform. And over time, they became 
you know, uh, they were exiled, isolated, and in- interbred, and over hundreds of years became more wolf-like, but also more docile. And and so, we, wolves, I, I are, feel like, wolves, wolves are kind of easy to domesticate. We've done it more than once. That's where we got dogs. Exactly. And so it feels like there's a there's a, a metaphor in here for colonization and interbreeding with local populations. And the barbarity of humans, because they weren't going to let this native life form live. We killed all the wolves. Mm-hmm. Right. And and there's a you know there's real world history for that, where there were colonies, uh, especially in the British Empire, but other empires as well, where, uh, you know, the local populations were being bred out or, you know, that there was an attempt to breed them out or to, to wipe them out. Um, including creatures, because these wolf yep. wolf creatures apparently were not originally intelligent. And they, I think they made a point it, it, along the lines of they weren't going to, it's not like they were going to exterminate a people, but they weren't going to let the species live. Right. And, um, and we've done that too, you know, down in, uh, down in Australia and New Zealand, it's, and, or Tasmania rather, it's like, hey, I think these thylacines are eating our chickens. Let's kill all of them. Right, right, and wipe out the species. Well, you don't even have to go that far away. You know, wolves in Montana are still a controversy to this day. You know, there used to be a lot more wolves, especially in the mountainous areas of the state, and a lot of them were were wiped out as people came in and set up their ranches and their farms and had that, you know, had the issue of, you know, the wolves attacking their flocks, especially sheep. So, and it's still a controversy, you know, they, they're trying to, they re, they're reintroducing wolves into places like Yellowstone National Park, and there's, you know, what happens when the wolf leaves the park? Well, it, its days are numbered if it doesn't get back on the park. Right. right. Wolves don't obey the park borders. <laughs> nope. Um, yeah, and it, according to this, I think they, the humans wiped out the original wolf-like species um, and now all you have is the wolf-human hybrids that are left. So um, the the doctor is with the uh, the rebels. Let's call them the rebels or the hippies. And that's when the Red Hoods come in. The cops show up. And the doctor apparently tries to hypnotize the police with his fob watch. Or he, or he makes it look like he's doing it. But they, they're like, you can't hypnotize us. No, that's not going to work. But instead, what he's really doing is redirecting sunlight from off of his fob watch at them to make them start to transform, and that helps those skin hides escape, which which is mm-hmm. kind of a funny little yep. little thing he does. Um, I find yeah, the names skin hide interesting because skin and hide are the same thing. Mm-hmm. What they what they mean it as is, oh, your hide becomes like skin, but in actuality, skin and hide are the same thing. Yeah, instead of fur hide or like mm-hmm. fur skins, like if we had. Uh, uh, you know, werewolves, we call them fur skins or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, it's kind of neat. The, uh, the fob watch, she said is, is basically a mirror on the back. Cause it was bull Brummels who, you know, <laughs> yeah. no, notorious, you know, infamous king for of being, the dandies. Yeah, yeah. And very, you know, very vain. So he had, could use the back of the watch for a mirror. Well, then it worked to reflect the light. And, and it's kind of appropriate. I don't know if they meant it this way. They may have, but it's kind of a comment on the sixth doctor because he's sort of the ultimate bad taste dandy. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's, he's got the amazing technicolor vomit dream coat and <laughs> which I never, it, I mean, I recognize it's extreme, but I, it never bothered me really. Um, but he does have a bizarre sense of fashion and I can see Bo Brummel 
you know, looking at him and saying, oh, wow, that's, I love that look and, and get, ending up giving him his mirror pocket watch. We, we recently heard Bo Brummel. Oh, Bo Brummel was in the, uh, the twin dilemma. That's right. That they meant that he was mentioned. I was trying to remember where we'd heard hmm. Bo Brummel in relationship to the sixth doctor before. I thought it was a big finish, but I just looked it up quickly. And it was in the twin dilemma. So for for me, the only way I know Bull Brummel is from uh, Billy Joel's. It's still rock and roll to me. (laughs) Really be a Bull Brummel baby. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so the Valyard shows up again and he's once again, posing as a random time Lord. And uh, he's trying to convince Charlie to stop the doctors from helping the rebels Mm -hmm. overthrow the, the cops and whatnot. What's his motivation here? Is it is he really trying to help them from being wiped out, or is it just I want them to be delayed long enough for me to get a hold of this psychic uh, tool? Well, I think it's a mix. Um, The the Valyard is going to be villainous at the end, but like the Master, not everything he does is bad. He can do good stuff for even good reasons. He is planning to steal the psychic lobotomizer, and we'll see what role that may play in the future. But he is planning to steal it, and he genuinely. Uh, but that doesn't mean he doesn't that he wants all these werewolves to be killed. Um, he does take the effort to use the TARDIS and his time freeze technology to stop the missile from killing all of them. He didn't have to do that. He could have just left with the psychic lobotomizer and left. You know, let everyone in, die. But he doesn't want to do that. He also is genuinely protective of his former self and of Charlie because he knows she's connected to the web of time. That's and and what Doctor Payne is about to do to Charlie will kill her unintentionally. So that's why he intervenes now to save Charlie because he knows she's important. His past self is important. He can't play with his timeline too much except under controlled conditions, which aren't present here. Right. And even though the veil, you know, the Valyard is a future incarnation of the doctor. So even though the Valyard may be a bad guy, he's still the doctor at some level. And so there's maybe this, like, he's not all bad and yeah. that sort of thing. Um, Yeah, I do. I do like it when he's talking to Charlie. He does say if the doctor succeeds, he may be subject to criminal proceedings, which I think is a nice, funny reference to the uh, trial of a time Lord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, and he t- says that Charlie has to be the one to do it because he can't, he's forbidden, and she's not subject to the, the rules of the web of time. You know, that's cause so he shows that he can, that he knows about her situation. Yeah, um, I found that discussion confusing. Um, I'm not sure yeah. that that holds together, but he does have at least a plausible form of deniability if the Time Lords ever call him on the carpet because she's already a rogue element from mm-hmm. from the laws of time. And so we have three of the young werewolves that are the, the main ones in the story. There's uh, the, f- the female Lena and then mm-hmm. Ugo, the leader, and then this other guy, Aaron. Aaron. A-R-I-N. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And Ugo kind of at first, he seems like this easygoing hippie dude, but when he changes, he wants to kill all of the constables to just end, to destroy the Red House. It turns out he's not it, Mr. Easygoing. No, not in his human form. And he wants to go to the mainland and infect all of the regular humans. Yep. Right. It turns out he's kind of the, like this radical revolutionary as opposed to Mr. You know, laid back, get along. 
Um, and then, but what it turns out, so I forget what happens to him. Does he, does he get killed? Uh, I don't know if he gets killed. Um, he certainly comes close to it, but he, I mean, and like he kills Constable Daisy. I love, I love that Constable Daisy, by the way, because she's just introduced as the constable and she's really mean. And then when she has, uh, when she has uh, Charlie in custody, Charlie, uh, she's interrogating Charlie and asking Charlie questions about herself. And Charlie answers the questions and then asks, pleasantly asks questions right back. Name, Charlie Pollard. What's yours? Daisy. Uh, And then then she's let her name slip. (laughs) And, and, And then later you have a report where Ugo and the rebels have killed the constable. And Charlie says, not Daisy. Right. Right, well, she's and, made this connection, she, yeah. Well, and she actually comes across, you know, after that, after the interview, more grandmotherly, where she was being mm-hmm. hard for the interview, but she really was a, you know, very gentle person. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and and again, it's this, this uh, more of this reversal of expectations that the story is doing. Like, everything is kind of reversed from what you expect it to be. Um, That's so part that, of what I like about this story, is even yeah. though it's not, it's not super high concept it is they have put thought into it that goes beyond just this is a basic monster story right and when the the doctor finally shows up at the red house dr payne's lab he they discover that the the psychic probe is missing and the the doctor's first instinct is to think that the uh, celestial intelligence agency has stolen it mm-hmm. um and because what you know it has to be a, someone who a time lord someone who can freeze time or something along those lines charlie never lets on and, and about has, and has a tardis that can materialize around this room filling machine right right exactly and charlie never lets on you know that she encountered the Valyard, who she thought was just another time lord um not at first she does eventually admit oh there's something i may have neglected to mention there was this time lord from the future here right right um, and they, so now they think that the missile is coming and the doctor's instinct is I need to save everyone, which is the usual doctor instinct. And so the first idea is to evacuate everybody into the TARDIS because every, the TARDIS obviously can hold everybody, but nobody wants to leave their house in the middle of the day because of, you know, the whole turning into a human thing. Um, and in fact, it, he eventually realizes he can only save a breeding pair, quote unquote. Uh, of Aaron and Lena. Yeah, that's kind of like not true because time machine, dude. You, you've got all the time you need to get these people off the island if you want to be creative about it. But they kind of gloss over that possibility. Um, I like how they play the Aaron and Lena breeding pair idea because, mm. you know, Dr. Payne proposes this. And as say, you can at least, you know, give the species a chance to be saved if you save a breeding pair. And Aaron is not one of the regular hippies. He's like only recently joined the group in order to investigate what happened to his brother who had joined the group. So Mm. he's not a committed hippie werewolf revolutionary at all. Mm. And he's thus not Lena's boyfriend. And, um, and, and, and Dr. Payne is like, okay, we have to save you and this girl who's not your girlfriend. So you can be a breeding pair. And he's like, wait, what? (laughs) But he accommodates himself pretty rapidly to that (laughs) that idea. And it's like, I have to think, if I was in that situation, 
Yeah, I'd probably accommodate pretty rapidly, too. <laughs> Teen teenage boy. So here's this cute girl. You're going to have to repopulate the species. Well, okay, I if suppose. I have to. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure how the girl feels about it, but the uh, the teenage boy with the pretty well, girl. Well, she, she kind of tells him to hush up, too, so I think she was kind of <laughs> thinking about the idea as well. Yeah. Right, right. It's kind of like, oh, well, that makes everything so much easier. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh so they they but they don't end up having to do that because like like you said Jimmy the missile fell short and we get the reveal that um this clever thing the time freezing which is what we talked about recently with Missy freezing all of the uh airplanes in the, in the sky but in that story the witch is familiar in the, in, in the, in, 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 yeah. the the witch is familiar yeah in yep. that story the airplanes are um Orbit, orbitally locked to the surface so as the planet turns the planes do too and this right. is different yeah. um the 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 missile was frozen in a way that was not orbitally locked to the earth so the earth continue or the planet continued to turn underneath it right right i suppose you can adjust things like that if you're a time lord uh yeah. so um it could also have been an icbm so it got out of the atmosphere right this that's true that's yeah it's, it's ballistic yep and just out um so they so they survive and they come up with this idea to you know i in fact i think what the doctor said not even just find a new island but go and um integrate into society as best you can you know try to fit in wasn't it well that's that's what um that's what tardis wiki says something like that but that's not what i heard i heard mm -hmm. go find another island somewhere and it might even be a paradise okay okay um i have i was telling father cory earlier that i've taken to editing the the, the uh, tardis wikis pages for <laughs> these things when they get stuff wrong like last time it was danny and dave and stuff like that so, yeah uh, um that need, may need to be another edit that it needs to make um so, but the doctor never finds out that the Valiard is involved. So that's two stories, and the doctor mm -hmm. never finds out. Presumably, he won't find out in the next one. He won't find out till the fourth one. The well, Valiard's... he may he may find out by the end of the third one. It you know okay. that we may have a big. That's another common pattern in these sets of four is we may have the big bad revealed at the end of part three. Okay, okay, yeah. Which is kind of it happened a lot even in classic TV. Who. You know, the, the, the getting the big reveal and that's the cliffhanger to part four. Yeah. So that's true. Uh, and so, but that's where we, we, we end up. Um, final thoughts, any father Corey, nothing here, Jimmy. I like how there are elements, especially towards the beginning of this, of folk horror, um, which is like, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of British horror that sort of has a rural setting. Um, you know, it's not like in a city, like an American werewolf in London or whatever. It's like a murder. There's this creepy murder village somewhere. And we, we very much have that kind of folklore vibe at the beginning of this because you have, you're on this remote island and so it's rural and you have the, um, the cottages of which are some kind of pop-up pre, pre-manufactured things, but you have what are effectively villager cottages that are around this big house on the hill, which is the red house. And Charlie says it looks like they're kind of like servants' quarters. You know, they're where the people who serve the big house live. And um, and then you have this looming, imposing house with this terrifying name, the red house. And it's 
and it's red, and you have Dr. Payne. And, I mean, her real name is Dr. Payton, but the locals perceive her as causing them pain, so they call her Dr. Payne. And you, and then you have chasing through the woods. That commonly happens in folk horror. Um, monsters in the woods, and these are classic monsters being werewolves. Uh, you have the curfew bell at dawn, which is when then people, everyone cowers inside their houses during the day. And this is all weird behavior that seems sinister, and it's very folk horror esque. Right. I, by the way, I did like that, that opening bit where the doctor, uh, Charlie imagines that there's servants' quarters for the manor house. Mm-hmm. And so the doctor starts teasing her about being uh, aristocracy and yeah. you know, you're like, showing your background. And she's like, <laughs> she, and she's like, no, I'm serious. I think that's what this is. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I'm sorry. I've been I'm not addressing you properly, my lady. <laughs> that's that was good. That was, that was funny. Um, she also had, uh, described herself as an Edwardian adventuress, uh, even though that's technically not correct. She's more of a Georgian adventuress, but uh, people would associate that with Jane Austen instead of you know early 20th century. I just thought that was kind of a fun little note because for American listeners who don't know the uh, you Edwardian Georgian that sort of stuff Victorian refers to who the monarch is. Yeah, uh, and so uh, you know. Edwardian is usually refers to the beginning of the 20th century, even though Edward was succeeded by George. Um, we wouldn't call it the Elizabethan era in the 20th century. That that's Shakespeare's time. You know, that so, one's taken. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's the thing is it's only taken by taken by the first one who gets there. Um, so you have to come up with another mm. one. So or the more or, prominent or, or how depending on how long it's been. Right. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah. So um, that brings us to the end of uh, this this particular part of this big finish story, the the Red House. Um, before we wrap things up, I do want to do the uh, some feedback from listeners on our episode three fifteen on last Christmas. Uh, we had talked in that one about people dying in their dreams, and so Paul Leone commented on our YouTube. He said, uh, "I've died in at least one dream, and I'm still here." I think <laughs> so. Not dead yet. <laughs> Not dead yet. I'm feeling better. During during before we recorded, Dom, you know, uh, was commenting and said, "Oh, I I think therefore I am, or I think therefore I'm alive." And I said, "Actually, no. You can think when you're dead." <laughs> in fact, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, there are which I read a few months ago. There are helpful you what what you do with the Tibetan Book of the Dead is you read it to a dying person or a dead person to help them navigate the afterlife. And in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it says things like, "Now you're going to notice your corpse is there, and you're going to notice your relatives are you know washing it and preparing it and mourning you and things like that and And you will think to yourself, "Oh no, I am dead. Whatever shall I do?" And then it gives you advice about what to do and not do while you're dead. Like, don't try to get back in your body. It will not end well. Um, <laughs> your body's going to decay. Uh, but I, 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 I love that. Oh, that sudden realization after you're dead is, oh, no, I'm dead. What am I going to do? <laughs> and, um, and, and that's actually reported in literature elsewhere, that uh, not everybody who dies is ready to face the fact they're dead. You can have a kind of sixth sense uh, uh, situation where someone who's dead doesn't want to acknowledge that fact. It's kind of funny, the 
Tibetan Book of the Dead is kind of like what to expect when you're expecting, but for death. Yeah. <laughs> what to expect when you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, Paul, for your feedback. We love to get feedback. Uh, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Michael H., Mark F., Chuck C., Chris B., and Sandra S. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edited this episode. And that's it from us this time. We'd love to know what you think of this Big Finish story, The Red House. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Send an email to Who at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. You can also comment after you watched us on the Secrets of, in the Secrets of Doctor Who on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Media. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the third uh, part of the Six Doctors' Last Adventure called Stage Fright. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Well, Dom, thank you. Apologies to headphone listeners. We'll bring that down and edit. But once again, <laughs> I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, and now this really fits, stop yipping. It's like being stuck in the lavatories at a debutante's ball. Ha, 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 ha.